Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is Howard Jacobson. He's been nominated for the Booker Prize three times, winning it once, in addition to many other awards, including those for comic fiction. This conversation was recorded at The Times and The Sunday Times Cheltenham Literary Festival in front of a live audience. In this discussion, we look back at his early life, as recounted in his latest book, the memoir, Mother's Boy. Howard, reading your back catalogue, we see little snippets of, of your autobiography kind of sneaking in here and there, but this is the first time that you've actually written about your life. Why and why now? Overtly, yes. I, don't, I mean, you're, you're right, there's always been snippets. I am a very autobiographical writer. If any of you would charge me with that, I would deny it immediately. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I make everything up. And the truth is, it is no matter how true a statement is when you begin it as a writer, it's not true by the time you've finished. Put a punctuation, put a comma in here, put a full stop in there, put a semicolon there, and you have changed it. So I've been playing with my life and changing it all along from the very beginning. And maybe I felt this time naively that I would be able to be, come, a bit, come a bit cleaner even thought about calling it coming clean. And I thought about coming clean-ish. And then I thought, well, that's not very clean, then, is it? <laughs> Sometimes when I'm feeling fancy about myself, I say, I think I was wanting to make some sort of restitution because I haven't been a very nice person. I've been a very nice son. I've been the most appalling father. I've been a shocking husband to countless wives. Actually, that's not true. That's showing off. I can't count them. <laughs> And just not been, and not been a good friend. I've been very... I'm a writer. We're very horrible. We are horrible people. It's in the nature of things that you're a horrible... Most people who call themselves artists. I so revere art. I so revere, I revere art so much that I'm kind of embarrassed to even say I am an artist. I try not to look like an artist. I try not to sort of sound like an artist. But I only revere art. I revere nothing else. And it just is the case that what you're doing when you're an artist is so... It's so cruel and it's so exclusive, really, and it's so inevitably solipsistic, whatever kind of writer you are, that you are just... You can't be an artist and be nice. There isn't room. There isn't time. It can't happen. Which is why when people complain about certain kind of artists and say they're misogynists or worse or something, I just think, well, of course, of course they are. Of course they are. Had Woody Allen been a really, really nice, sweet man, he wouldn't have made those troubling films. You don't have to like him, and you don't have to like me. It's nice. It's nice to be liked when it comes your way. But you can't expect it, really, as, as an art. So I just wondered whether I could sort of make some restitution, in a way, for not being so horrible. But then, of course, it's a spiral, because the minute you, as an artist, make restitution, you're being horrible again. <laughs> So even the act of making restitution is selfish and self-centred and somebody gets, somebody gets hurt. I was conscious of hurt the whole time I was doing this. Hurt to the people I was saying sorry to because in the act of saying sorry, you have to sort of allude to what you've done and they might not want to be reminded of that. They might not even have known what you'd done to them, so you have to be careful with that. Then I got very guilty about leaving people out. I can't leave this one out. This book was about four times its size originally because I kept mentioning everybody that I felt I'd ever been not very nice to until various people, my wife and my agent and my publisher, said, you're just going to have to drop some of these names. 
no, no one will care and it's too much to put up. And anyway, it gets very monotonous. You saying how horrible, it's getting monotonous now, I can see. <laughs> saying how horrible I am, but it was something like that. It was something like a restitution, but also it was an artistic challenge. How do, how do you do it? You say in the book that when you think of your father, all your thoughts of him are, are taken up with remorse. Well, that's because I... Mentally, not physically, I, I, was in, I treated him badly. Physically, I was in no position to treat him badly. He was a, a big man. He couldn't treat my father badly. He treated me quite badly physically, really. But I demeaned him. I trivialised him. I think about this a lot still. I turned him into a, into a sort of clown. He was a clownish man. He could be very, very funny. Among the many things he was, he was all sorts of things, but um, he was a children's magician. And a children's magician is also, in its very nature, a bit of a funny thing to be, particularly when you're no good at it. And... <laughs> and I mean, my life growing up with my father, all of the whole family, was comical. You'd open a wardrobe and a dead rabbit would fall out, for example. You don't feel your father is a tragic figure when he's just killing your, your pets all the time for a trick. He used to... He discovered that you could make... He needed invisible wire for some tricks. And he discovered that you could... The best way of making invisible wire was to take an old pair of stockings, or a new pair of stockings, any he could get his hands on, and pull out the filaments, whatever you call what stockings are made of, and you kind of pull them out individually and you stretch them. Well, these things were stretched all over our house. There was wire, invisible wire stretched all over our house. So you'd come in to the house and forget that that was there, walk in, say, hello, everybody, and then <laughs> throttle yourself. <laughs> yeah, and either you get very, very furious and hate your father for doing this, or you come to think, well, it's part of... His name was Max. And his, his stage name as a magician was Uncle Max. And that's and we started to call him, think of him as Uncle Max. That's Uncle Max. He became a, a figure of preposterous fun. But in fact, he was a charitable man. He was a good man. He was a better man than I am. He was, in fact, a proud father. Once he worked it out, he never knew what I was about, really. He couldn't understand why I was, why I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And he would look at a book and stare at it like that. Why do you want to do this? What is it you want to do? And he tried to read one once, and he never got me. He said, I finally got to the bottom of this. And he, then he started to read out the ISBN number. <laughs> I swear to God, I swear this is not... He'd had it about six months. I said, have you only got a one? Yeah, yeah, well, I'm a slow reader. And then he produced a book, which was two pages of cyclist-style sheets of tricks. And he was very proud of that. Two writers in the house now, two writers in the house. So I wanted to... I don't know whether I gave him back any of his dignity. He had dignity. He was loved. He was a loved man in the neighbourhood, much more loved than I've ever been in my neighbourhood. And I've never really inhabited a neighbourhood in the way that he did. He was a personality in the part of Manchester where we grew up. And I just wanted to give a, li a little bit of that mm. back. Several of my friends have told me only recently how much they love my parents. And one, my very best friend, who I hadn't seen for about 50 years, we left school, we were very close at school. He went off, became a successful writer in America. And then he came over about three years ago. And I still see us now standing in Piccadilly Circus. We'd had lunch and it was lovely reconnecting with somebody from back then. And he suddenly started to talk about my parents. 
And I said, oh, God, I remember that my dad used to do practice all his tricks on him. I said, that must have driven you mad every time you came round. He did those terrible tricks. He said, those tricks weren't terrible. They were fantastic. I said, but they were so obvious you could see how they worked. He said, I couldn't. I thought they were fantastic tricks. I said, oh, God, well, I'm so sorry he gave you such a sorry. He said, don't be sorry. I adored your father. He said, and he used that word, I adored your father. And I thought, did I adore my father? I suppose I did somewhere deep down in some, somewhere in my gut. I adored my father, but I never said it. And I certainly never said it to him. And it made me feel, as other people saying something has made me feel, that I was... One of the other things I was going to call this book was Shame Junkie. I'm high on shame. Um, and um, one of the things that I was writing this book for was to admit shame at being so ashamed. I was ashamed of them. Why was I ashamed of him? Because I thought he showed me up in front of my friends and all along... He didn't. My friends thought he was terrific. And I'm now ashamed of being ashamed. So I wanted to do that too. I wanted to kind of get the shame out. If he wasn't a reader, your mother absolutely was. And you say that the hours of reading with her determined the very orchestration of your interior life. Wonderful turn of phrase. <laughs> yeah. She read to me. She read poems to me. It's funny what I've done. I've emptied the house of my father and my brother, who was younger than me, and my sister, who was younger still. I've emptied them. They're not there. And in this emptied house, there's just my mother and me. And she's sitting in an armchair, and the lights are down, and it's kind of twilight time, and she's reading to me. She really did, except that the house wasn't empty, but I needed to empty them because I want that reading to have been just for me. Read just for me, Ma. And what she read to me was... 19th century poetry. She read Tennyson, she read Wordsworth, she read uh, Browning and Matthew Arnold, and she had favourite poems like The Forsaken Merman and The Lady of Shalott. Quite disturbed poems, really. Poems about depression and loneliness and disturbance, and she read these. Where she found them, I've no idea. She didn't go to school. She left school at 14. She had no education. She found poetry for herself. She found it. She found these, these anthologies, these treasuries. She loved the poetry and she read them to me. I mean, I was, how old was I then? Maybe eight? So I heard the sound of, well, I still hear Wordsworth. I hear Wordsworth almost as much as I hear Shakespeare in my head. My mother didn't give me Shakespeare in my school, I suppose, and my reading gave me Shakespeare. These things are very important. The sounds that you hear, the rhythms that you hear, the poetry that you hear, whether you go on to write poetry or not, the music, the music of language terribly important and determine where your imagination will go and what you hear when you write. When I write, I hear, I hear words. I hear other people's words. I don't steal them, but I hear the cadences. Particularly, I hear Shakespeare, but I hear, I hear Wordsworth a lot too. Partly what gives you that, there is a, a Wordsworthian line, and I can't remember it, when he, Wordsworth is so good about how things are consecrated, things are made precious to you by... The fact that the sounds that the river made, the appearance of the mountains for Wordsworth, close to home, where he'd been brought up, the heart's affections. Um, and my mother consecrated language for me, so that it was, although I, I, I never said I loved her and she never said she loved me, nonetheless, we were intensely close. We were almost too close, actually, to talk about that love thing. Love you, love I hear other people doing that. Love you, love you, bang, the phone goes down. I mean... We were too close to have done that. That would have, you know, denigrated it, cheapened it, really. When that love permeates the language that you hear, 
and that the loved person speaks to you. You've got that then forever, that's forever. Whatever, you know, whatever I go on to do, whatever good things or rubbish or nothing that I go on to write, that's what I will die, I will die hearing that. The words of those great writers. I went off to university, I went to Cambridge, I studied with, you know, some of the most strenuous and the best literary critics, and that part of going to university was terrific. But the person who influenced me about literature most was my poor mother who'd not had an education, who'd just found books because she loved them. And the love that she found in them was the love that she passed on to me. It's invaluable. And I wanted to be able to talk about that, as we are now talking about mm. Some of what I wanted to do here, I have done, and I'm doing again by remembering her. Is it cathartic? There's nothing to cathart. <laughs> no, uh, it's not anything like that. It's just... Just reminding myself of the truth of things, really. Is it cathar? I don't know. You say that your parents might have been completely foreign to each other, and you give a wonderful example of what they each call a chamber pot. Yeah. Must I talk about that? You don't have to. <laughs> it's your gig. You don't my mother was very... My mother. The other thing my mother passed on to me, my father wasn't like this. My father was just frank and easygoing. Ma'am, it's not for nothing that I talk about toilet rolls and my mother and toilet rolls. If Tennyson and Browning and Wordsworth bound us, so did toilet rolls. <laughs> my mother created around her a kind of fraught kind of sanctity around the bathroom. My mother was going to the... We lived in a smallish house, so there's three kids and two parents, three bedrooms, not much privacy. And if my mother was going to the toilet upstairs, we all had to go downstairs. And sing, really. <laughs> so if you'd have come into our house in 1955 or something and heard the whole family singing, she would be coming round the mountain. <laughs> that was because my mother was in the toilet. We were not to hear bodily sounds. Bodily sounds were never referred to and they were never heard. We never used the language. There's certain words for all that which we, I, today I cannot use without shame. And we were brought up so that the bad side of all that is you do grow up to be, if not exactly ashamed of your body, then perturbed by your body. Unnatural. I'm a very unnatural man and I was brought up by a very unnatural woman. I mean, I've got through, I've survived, but I too would rather not go to a place as private as the toilet unless I thought anybody around was singing a song and couldn't, and couldn't hear. Extend that and you've got some quite strange, and if you want to be, you know, cruel about it, you could say neurotic attitudes to the body. And I definitely was brought up neurotically around the body. And my father wasn't like that, but he kind of, he watched and he'd just shake his head. That's the woman I've married, that's what she's like. I used to think, that it was because of where she'd come from. She always struck me as having come from a more delicate place than my father. And I didn't know why I thought that or what that meant, actually. And then eventually I discovered when finally... He used to say to Matt, who all Jewish kids growing up at that time would say to their parents, where do you come from? And they'd go, there, there. Which, you know, if you'd have looked it up on the map, it probably would have been Cheltenham, actually, there. <laughs> they didn't want to talk about it. What we all told was sort of Russia. And then my father just opened up once and said that he'd been born in England, my mother had been born in England, but my father's parents had been born in Ukraine. 
in a little village called Kamenets Podolsky, which I keep listening to here if it's been bombed or anything, but it's not referred to. It's right in the middle of Ukraine. My mother did not, and I own it, and she never knew where she came from until I found out quite by chance by an old and elderly auntie of hers suddenly opened up in her 90s and suddenly brought this mail out and said, Howard, what do you, what's all this? What do you think this mail? Where? This is from the family. And it was Lithuanian, and it was the Lithuanian-Polish border. And the Lith Lithuanian Jews, anyway, were entirely different from Ukrainian Jews. The Ukrainian Jews were more like Cossacks. They kind of, my father was the kind of man that would wrestle a bear. He was that kind of, you read about him in Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. He didn't drink, otherwise he would have been, but he looked like one of those rollicking drunken men. And he, he used to dance, you know that Russian dance, the Kazatsky, when you get down on your knees and you kick. Once upon a time I could have shown you, but I can't do it now, it would be humiliating. And he used to do that in weddings and things. He would suddenly get very merry and start doing the Kazatsky. My mother would sit in the corner. My mother spent every event that we went to, silver wedding, golden wedding, engagement, bar mitzvah, hiding a face. And I was next to her, hiding my face. And my father was doing the Kazatsky, or he'd be on, down on his knees, lifting up a chair with one hand. He loved that, particularly with somebody in it. He actually loved doing that. So he's performing feats of Ukrainian strength and my mother is dying of shyness and embarrassment in the corner. And of course it's historically very interesting because in the history of Judaism, the Lithuanians and the Ukrainians fought like mad because the Lithuanians were, were austere, believed in Bible reading, believed in the very logical, most serious and scientific version of Judaism, and the Ukrainians, it was hysterical. It was the, there were some of those rabbis, the Hasidic rabbis came out of Ukraine, and they are described by some of the most serious-minded Lithuanian Jews as coming down from Russia into Western Europe, doing somersaults, rolling down, physically rolling. And I'm caught between these two versions. Absolutely, it was, it was a battleground. They didn't know they were having the battle. I didn't know I was on a battleground. And then, you know, eventually you realize you are actually, and you're being brought up by two people who are diametrically opposed in every way. But they got on. It was a love match, as you know, as extreme opposites often do mm. get on. But it got fascinating to me, and here I am talking about me again, because I realised I was refighting that war, this great war between... Little did I know, growing up in, in North Manchester, that I was fighting a war between Lithuanian Jewry and, and Ukrainian Jewry. Little did I know that, that I, I was a little warrior of those. Mm. And I was... Half the time, my shy, my shy mother's friend, her little boyfriend, shy with her, appalled by the show-offiness of my, of my father and his sisters. He had about 40 sisters, my father. <laughs> all very glamorous, all did up in a... When, when there was a do, they were all spangly and diamante and things, and they did the conga. They just... <laughs> first opportunity, my father's sisters would do the conga, do the conga through the hall, out into the street. If any of you were ever driving across Burial Road in Manchester in 1953 or 54, and you've got a memory of a conger of <laughs> my aunties. Whereas my mother and her sister and her mother dressed much more plainly and sat in a corner. And I sort of agreed with them. I agreed with my mother, but I wanted to be the other side. I was my mother, but I wanted to be my father. So in a way, this, this book could have been father's boy as well.
My father worked the markets for about seven or eight years and I used to work with him. And he used to he had a big van and we drove around Welsh markets, up to Scottish markets sometimes. It was, there was just one adventure after another. And one day my father needed a lot of help because we were quite busy. It was quite a successful enterprise for a little while before it wasn't. And he employed this big, use that word starky then, big, big, strong starky fella to help him on the markets. And my father got very suspicious because he thought, there's a moment when you're working on the market, you, you take the goods, my father's on the back of the van doing an auction over here, over here, and I and other people working for him, you take the goods out into the market, into the crowd, which is called the edge. You take the stuff out onto the edge and then you do the transaction. That's for you, there's the money. And my father felt that not enough money was coming back and he started to suspect this starkey. And he accused him once. And this guy said, Max, that's a very serious... Are you accusing me of stealing money? And my father said, I am, yes. And I heard, that's Dad, what are you doing? So the bloke says, OK, I want you to make the accusation in the market superintendent's office. So my father went into the market superintendent's office. And my father said, so where's the money, Max? And my father said, it's concealed somewhere. He said, all right. He took his, he took his jacket off. Search my pockets, no money. Took his shirt off. Where's the money, Max? Where's the money, Max? Finally, he's down to next to nothing. Big man, proud man, standing there. Okay, Max, where's the money? No money. And then suddenly my father sees something. And he sees that he's wearing a plaster on his finger, this guy. And he thinks, hang on, that plaster on his finger has been on his finger a long time. And he has a brainwave, my father. He says, what's in that plaster? The guy says, my finger's in that plaster. What do you think? He said, no, take the plaster off. And rolled up inside the plaster around his finger. The 20 pound notes, we had 20 pound notes in those. Or maybe there were 10 pound notes, I don't know. So in the 11th hour, we got him. And my father was so pleased, so pleased that he'd got him. And that's known as the elastoplast story. <laughs> Family, it's a family treasure, that story. Tell us about the elastoplast, Dad. <laughs> the, the book is about the makings of you as a writer, and, and one of the ways that that came about was Cambridge. I was lonely at Cambridge. I had always wanted from a very... Uh, I was a very... <laughs> take with a pinch of salt everything I've said to you, and now believe this. I was a very, very sentimental, romantic boy, and all I ever wanted from the earliest age was a girlfriend. I think I was probably about six when I first thought, I'd, you know, I'd like... Maybe I even said it to my mother. Mother, how do you get a mistress? <laughs> I wanted a little mistress. I'd read about men and mistresses, and I'd seen men with their... Go and I'd seen... And I looked at couples walking along the street when the man had his hand on a woman's shoulder or her neck. I loved that thing. Or the woman had her hand on the man, and I thought, I want to be part of that. I want to be walking along, holding hands with somebody who I love, or I exaggerate when I was said I was four, maybe I was eight. But I wanted it from a very early age. I wanted, always wanted that. I wanted to be in love, actually. And I got to Cambridge, and I'd had some girlfriends before going to Cambridge, but nothing serious. And I thought, when I get to Cambridge, something serious will happen. I imagine, actually, that when I got to Cambridge, I would fall in love with a titled woman. And I wanted to fall in love with a titled woman because the novels I dreamed of writing were kind of English country house novels of the kind written by Henry James. 
and to a degree Jane Austen, both of whom I'd been an early precocious admirer of. And I wanted to write those down, but I thought I will need to know something about English country house life, really, fairly. And one of the ways will be I will meet a woman with a title and we will marry and we could decide, should we go back to my uh, <laughs> semi-detached house in Presswich or maybe we'll go to your hall in rural <laughs> Derbyshire and we'll do that and be a lovely big hall There'd be a little, um, because I wasn't trying to turn my back on my family, I thought there'd be a little hut that I could put my parents in. <laughs> I might not admit that they were, they were my parents, but who are those people? I don't know who are they. I thought they were friends of yours, and leaving them in there. And I could not find, I could not find one. Not only could not find the title woman, I actually, in three years at Cambridge, never saw a girl. <laughs> I never saw, I knew one girl to talk to, and that's somebody you probably now all know, and I don't, now don't talk to her anymore, we're deadly enemies now, and that's Miriam Margulis. <laughs> that was it, Miriam Margulis was, nothing said against it, but Miriam Margulis was the only example of womanhood <laughs> that I encountered when I was at Cambridge. And I was lonely, and I'd go wandering around the fields of Cambridge, and want the backs, they were called, weren't they, by the river, and I'd go punting, because I always thought it would be the most wonderful thing to punt a gorgeous woman with a title. So I practiced the punting. Now, if you want to see a sad picture, it's a man pining for a woman he hasn't met yet. <laughs> punting on his own down the cam. It's the saddest thing. And it's such a waste, too, because I became a really fantastic punter. I could have given some title woman the time of her life. <laughs> so I left really not having met one miserable. You did eventually marry, Barbara, you married out. And I've just realised... Half what... out. Half out, I beg your pardon. Half out, we had a half in, half out ceremony. We had a reform Jewish ceremony. My parents would never have allowed me to marry out completely. So she was half Jewish and half not. Her parents wanted her to have a Jewish husband. So she became, there was a process you can go, where you're kind of taught. Her father was Jewish, her mother wasn't Jewish. Her mother was one of those non-Jewish women that's more Jewish than anybody I've ever known in my life. She knew far more about Jewishness than my mother did. She cooked Jewish foods. My mother didn't cook Jewish foods. My mother just cooked tins. <laughs> Just before we leave the subject of marriage, though, because you had a few, as you said. Uh, you also said that, yeah, you probably shouldn't have been married at all. But in 2005, you married Jenny, and the ceremony was officiated by the chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs. For someone who didn't practice religion, why was that important to you? And do you think that that's happened, that perhaps you've become more Jewish by writing about being Jewish? What happened was that Rabbi Sachs came to read some of my books and really liked them. He was a very, very erudite man, Rabbi Sachs. I didn't agree with lots of the things he said about Jewishness, but, you know, he was the chief rabbi. He was going to have to be a bit on the religious side, wasn't it, really? <laughs> but we got on, we hit it off very well, and I told him at one point when I was about to marry the woman to whom I married now, and finally a happily married man, I became capable of being happy when I was sort of in my early 60s. And one word of advice, if there's anybody here who's kind of maybe has a Jewish boyfriend or thinking of it or something, don't go near a Jewish man until he's 60. <laughs> and then when he's 60, he's fantastic. 
Jewish man of 60 is wonderful. A Jewish man under 60, don't touch him. So there I am of 60 and I've met the woman of my dreams and it happens that she is Jewish, but that isn't what makes her the woman of my dreams. She's never been married before and she's almost my age and her mother is excited out of her skin that her daughter, who she thought she'd never see married, let alone marry a Jewish man, is gonna be married to a Jewish man. So she wanted a nice wedding. We wanted a serious, what I didn't want was, was somebody to come along and do, you know those people, humanist weddings? when they play, you know, um, always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> and we wanted something august and ceremonial. And I'm saying this to the chief rabbi, and I'm saying, do you know anyone, maybe a reform rabbi who would marry us to give us a service? I'll do it. And I couldn't believe he would do it. And he gave us this wonderful, solemn, ceremonial service. And all my friends said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Have you become religious? I said, no. I like the language, I like the solemnity of the language, the grandeur of the language, I want it to mean something. I don't want some tatty, modernised it, so that's the story. Finally, what is the proper meaning of the, the Yiddish verb kvel? How do you even say it? Kvel. K-V-E-L-L. Kvel. And it's very interesting, kvel, because it takes a wonderful preposition. You kvel over. You kvel over. I kvel. Your mother kvels over you when you achieve something. It's pride. It's taking excessive pride in a member of your family or somebody that you love. I could kvell. I could kvell over him. It's wonderful. It's wonderful sound. Kvell. Howard, KV. your mother would kvell over this book, <laughs> as I do. Uh, thank you. Thank you thank so you, much. Thank you, Georgina. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Mother's Boy by Howard Jacobson is out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to The Times and the Sunday Times Cheltenham Literary Festival and to our production team of Nora Hull and Sarah Nicholl. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.